Go ahead and open your Bibles. Meet me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to try to cover 2, 1 through 11 this morning. And we're so glad that you're with us today. Hope you have great plans. Hope the ham's in the oven or the reservation was made months ago. But I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day today. Let's pray together as we get into God's Word. Would you pray this prayer? Just say, God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. Just give that prayer to God. God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. And God, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that anyone hearing this message would be edified and that Satan would be horrified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've gone through Romans 1, a little bit of introductory stuff, but then we started Paul's argument kind of in the courtroom, and he's, he's making his case. Uh, our last week was the indictment against a humankind, right? And we all probably sat there saying, yeah, that's right, they're sinful, uh, and it just nailed all the sinfulness of mankind. We know that from Adam and Eve, there was sin. We are all from that tree. Uh, we, we fall not far from from where that was planted. It was planted in, the, in a orchard, right? And the, our world now is the result of years and years and years of sin. And, that, and this orchard we all live in is sin-cursed. The tree we all came from is sin-cursed. And sometimes the fruit of all of our actions are sinful. And so now I love what Paul does. Paul turns the corner and he uses a literary device. Sometimes when you read, you need to remember the Bible is literature. Everybody say literature. Hate to make you go to school, but you got to be a learned reader and understand that sometimes the writer is using a common literary device so that you can understand what his argument is. We're going to get to that in just a moment. I remind you the main thing that we've picked up so far. I think this has kind of been the thing that's been in my mind. We should have gospel urgency. When we see what Paul's laid out and realize that the world is sinful, no man is without excuse, we should have an urgency to share the gospel because the gospel is the thing that's needed. And can I remind you, eyeballs here, can I remind you, it's coming. Don't forget, Paul's making an argument here. Yeah, he's nailing us all to the wall. Everybody that's ever had breath has to see that they are sinful and without excuse. But I just want to cheat and get a little further in the book without getting there yet and let you know Paul does another wonderful literary technique where he makes all this argument and then he stops and he says, but God, amen? Those are the two favorite words you should have coming out of Romans, but God. Man is terribly sinful on his way to hell. It's a terrible wreck. But God. Everybody say it with me. But God. Oh, that's good news. I, I, I want to share it every week, but it's not my text yet. It's coming. We'll get there. You've got to wait till like Romans 5, Romans 8, and you're going to hear great, great news. But it's not good news unless you understand and believe the argument that Paul's laying out right now. And again, last week he said, Mankind is without excuse. And, and here is the exhibit A of all their sinfulness. Remember, they even invent new ways of doing evil. That's how evil the world is. And then this week he starts, Romans 2, verse 1. You! I love that. I love that. See, I, I think Paul knew that last week, everybody who was reading this letter in Rome was like, Yeah! 
Look at those sinners. Those are awful people. All oh, those sinners are just terrible, then Paul says. You. Who's you? You who? Who, who? Who's this you? So as I read this, understand, this is actually called a diatribe. In literature, we call this a diatribe. Paul's been making an argument, and all of a sudden, he's got an adversary who showed up. We don't know who this is. There's no actual literal you, but he's making a point. He's now turning the address to an unknown source, and he's talking to a personified thing. It's a diatribe. And this you is you and me. Actually, as, you, as we read this today, understand he's just switched from talking about a lost heathen world, and all of a sudden he's going to start saying, now you, who, you religious people, I believe if you look at the context very carefully later on and a couple of more passages, he's going to start talking to the Jews specifically. But I don't think we should be left out. I think it should just be all religious people. If you find yourself religious today, and you do because you came to church, you're you. Everybody say, I'm you. Woo. So gospel urgency is even true for us good sinners. Did you catch that? We just heard about the bad sinners. Oh, they're bad. The list is awful. Exhibit A of sinfulness. But you know what? Gospel urgency is even good for us good sinners. Let's hear what Paul has to say. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. God does not show favoritism. May God add his blessing to the reading of Scripture this morning. Let's look at our big idea. Our big idea is the righteous judge shows no favoritism. It's the last verse. God does not show favoritism. So what do you think? Having heard this, can you get the whole point? I mean, can we be done and go to lunch early? It's pretty clear here. Paul's saying the world is heathen and lost and awful, full of evil in you. Who are you to pass judgment on them? All of you who are saying, amen, amen, brother Don, give it to him, brother Don. All of you who are so excited, you. Do you think you'll escape judgment? 
because we're good sinners? I think Paul's making a great point today that we ought to take very seriously. I won't go there yet. We'll keep there to the, uh, the big idea. But let's take it verse by verse. Romans 2, 1. I think he's very pointed. I think when he says you, the audience is like, what is he going to say about us? We're the church. We're both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. We make up a church in Rome. What is he going to say about us? I think it's very pointed. It reminds me when Nathan judged David. Remember that scripture in the Old Testament when Nathan laid out this whole scene and Nathan says somebody stole somebody's sheep and they killed it, blah, blah, blah. And he's laying out this terrible thing and David's getting mad at the, the perpetrator. And then Nathan says, David, you are that man. It's pointed. It's like, oh. So if we find ourselves angry at a sinful world last week, this week Paul turns his finger and he says, now you, you pious, religious, you moral, you will be justly judged. We'll also be judged. And there's no excuse for us. Remember, he's already made the point. There is no excuse for mankind. General revelation, creation, they should at least know from that that God is. So there's no excuse. And then he points to us and he says, you, you also there's no excuse for. What do you think? He's going he's gonna to just blow it off? He's, he's just going to judge the world, the lost sinful world, but his, his good sinners, he's just going to say, ah, don't worry about it. No, no, we got to dig deeper here. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God is creator. God owns everything, it's all his, therefore it's only his to judge, amen? God will sit in judgment. Verse three, so when you, a mere human being, I love that. I I hate that we have to be reminded of that. (laughs) You religious, nice, good people, you're good people. You religious people, but you're still mortal. (laughs) You're not God, Go ahead, look at the person next to you and say, you're not God. And then say it out loud, I'm not God. (laughs) Some of the wives were saying that to their husband, like, that was pretty, I'm not God. And that's why Paul then starts saying, who are you to judge? You're not God. Everyone will be judged by God. And he's not going to show any favoritism. Our world is crazy today. I mean, you all heard the news over the last two years. What's good for you, but not for me. Uh, you know, all that stuff. People are saying, you got to do that, and they get busted. Wouldn't it have been awful to be in politics, you know, and always wearing your mask and showing six feet of distance? Every time the camera's on, you're nowhere near anybody, right? But then they got video camera of your birthday party, and there's 100 people crammed in a room, 10 by 10, right? And, and nobody's wearing a mask, and you're all blowing out candles in everybody's faces. <laughs> you know, <laughs> What's good for you, but not for me, right? And and we have one rule, but then we don't follow it ourselves. And that's what Paul's getting at. See, let me just remind you how much you hated that. Paul's saying, who do you think you are that you judge people, but you do the same things? Can you imagine how rough that was? Remember, Paul just gave this awful list of sinfulness. And then he's like, who are you to judge? When you do the same things. (gasps) Murder? That list had murder. All these lists of bad things. And he said, you do the same thing. Do you think everybody looked around like, who killed somebody? Who killed somebody? But don't forget that list also had disobeyed their parents, 
lied. You do the same things. Verse 4, do you show contempt for the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Will your kindness, Lord, lead me to repentance? That's a great song, if I can remember it. It's a great song based on that verse itself. Your kindness, Lord. I think we as religious people, I'm all serious, this is important. I think we as religious people that believe in God, we know about God's mercy, amen? We know about God's grace, and we're thankful for it. But I think we can be numbed, numbed into thinking because we have this kindness and grace that he's just going to show favoritism to us. I think, I think we don't understand that his kindness to us, his love and mercy for us, was meant to lead us to repentance. Not to just forget about it. And Paul is making a good point there. That's why God loves you. That's why he should, so that you would repent, turn from your sinful ways. Verse five, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentance, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day. The spiritual legalism, list of rules. I think that's our problem in the church is we become pious and we think we're pretty good, and we get a, our own set of rules that we like to obey, right? And, and we like to, we judge our own selves, and in the church, there's kind of a, there's kind of a status level of who's the most pious. And, and we don't far fall from the tree, because in Jesus' day, there was a group just like that called the Pharisees. They had 613 laws. How'd you like that? 613 laws. I went to a Christian school my whole life, kindergarten till I graduated, then I went off to a Christian college. When you get to a Christian college, they give you a rule book. I looked at it as a plan book. If I could just break all these, I was like, I had a game plan. I'm just going to break all these rules. Because I went with a, a really bad heart. I wasn't following Jesus at the time. And I just thought, nuts to them. I'm going to rebel, rebel, rebel. The Pharisees loved their rules. They're, out of those 613 laws, there were 365 negative commands. Don't do this. Don't do this. And boy, if you grew up in, in a religiosity, you understand the don't rules. Don't do this. I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with the girls who do. Woo-hoo. Don't, don't, don't. No, no, no. And, 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 and it's not my church's fault, but my take on it as a young person was, God was just, no, don't, stop. If it's fun, stop doing it. That's why we had a joke when I was in college, fundamentalist. You know fundamentalist? Fun, damn, mentalist. <laughs> fun, damn, mentalist. Damn the fun, bunch of mental people. That's what we joked about. And I call myself an evangelical fundamentalist today because I have a better understanding that God is not a God of no, no, no. Don't, don't, don't. Stop, stop, stop. The truth is God loves us. He's given us freedom, but he loves us so much he don't want us to destroy ourselves. Amen. Last week, didn't I show you that if you get into those, that trap of sinfulness, it's actually a, it's, it's a handcuff, and it's a spiral downward, and so God's like, there's some things you need to avoid. I will say this about those Pharisees. They did have 248 positive commands, so there were 248 things that were positive, but it produced a heartless, cold, arrogant brand of righteousness. 
That's what religiosity does. Religious people find themselves to be better than everybody else. And so we get more rules. And they're mostly man-made rules. And, and, and uh, let me tell you the trouble with religion. I've made just six points. Let me do it. Trouble with religiosity and with legalism is new laws continually have to be needed. In legalism, new laws. There's got to be more laws. There's got to be new rules. You know, they, they say if you're a good youth pastor, we'll set Ben up for this. If you're a good youth pastor, people make rules around your group. Like, like every time you go somewhere, they've got a new rule. Every time you go to the go-kart place, oh, they're here. Don't forget, do not run over the attendant with the go-karts. Because you know that they did that in the past, Right? Uh, we had a, a resort place that we would go to in the winter, and there was a rule they would place. Do not go naked to the hot tubs. I'm not going to say anything from there, but they only put it up when our group got there. Rules. New rules. If there's new rules, and by the way, I just, I, I, again, I I'm, I'm grew up in this, and so I don't like rules. I tend to just stay away from rules. I really don't like the fact that we have a sign on those doors that says coffee only with lids. There's a rule gotta have a lid come on we got a new floor that you can't destroy free yourself let's let's do it just free yourself (laughs) you know what i just that's my nature that's my nature but some of you might be of the other ilk that loves rules you just love tell me what they are and i'll be good tell me what to do and i'll nail it but with religiosity new rules have to continually be needed accountability to man instead of god it reduces a person's ability to discern. You've got to learn to discern. I mean, let me tell you, I was a professional youth worker for 25 years. And I realized that we were producing a bunch of kids that we would tell them what was right and what was wrong. And the minute they went off to live on their own, nobody was there to explain things to them and tell them what was right and wrong. And they had no ability to discern on their own. They had never learned to discern. Learn to discern. It creates a judgmental spirit. It creates a false standard of righteousness. And let me tell you, it was flat out rejected by Christ. When Jesus was here, he rejected the Pharisees living by rules. And I I say all that because I see this. What Paul is heading is he's saying, now you, religious person, don't forget, there will be judgment for all. Everybody say all. It says in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. This is where it gets real tricky. And I'm not going to do mental gymnastics, but you need to understand what Paul is doing here. Because Paul is the one that has, we know Paul's teaching is, for by grace you are saved through faith. And it's not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you heard what I read earlier, it sounds like Paul is saying it's all based on what you do. You'll be punished for what you do, good or bad. So what, what do you think here? What, I think there's no conflict here. I think Paul is saying the deeds of a person are acted out based on who they are and where they're at. What comes out of a man? Remember I told you the heart is desperately wicked, but also guard your heart for from it flows the wellspring of life. And so your actions come from who you are. Remember, the heart is the eye. It's not the mind, but it's who you are. And so what's in you is what comes out of you. I don't think Paul is saying your action as far as your deeds will either get you into heaven or get you into hell. But we act on our 
being. Does that make sense to you? We do who we are. And what Paul is saying is, is, hey, your deeds, don't forget what you do. Your actions are required judgment. And nobody's going to skip out on that. Verse 7, to those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and mortality, he'll give eternal life. But it's not performance-based. Choosing to follow Jesus and walk in his ways is the path of the, the believer. Amen? If you're going to follow Jesus as a Jesus disciple, the goal is to be more like him every day. A little more like Jesus, a little less like me. <laughs> and so actions are who you are. That's why we all hate somebody who's two-faced. Remember that hypocrite is, is the actor term in, in, in old Greece? They used to, to uh, paint one side of a face in a play, and the other side was a totally different character. So on this side, you could have like no mustache, and on this side, he would have maybe a mustache and a goatee. And he would turn his face to the audience to give his lines. He was this person, but now he's this person. And we all hate the hypocrite who's two-faced. They say one thing, but they act another. I think Paul is getting down to it and saying, you act who you are, and it will be judged. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Rejecting and choosing to follow evil, idolatry will also be judged. Then he goes, this is important, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I love that. Because Paul, again, is writing to this church in Rome. There's some Jewish believers there and don't forget, they really, the Jews feel really good about their religiosity, I mean, for crying out loud, the chosen ones, right? And in that same church, he's got Gentiles. They weren't born Jewish, but they've come to faith in Christ. They're both together, but I'm telling you, you get the sense that the Jews kind of felt a little superior to those Gentiles. Oh, we're glad you're here. Oh, it's so good that you've been saved. Too bad you weren't born me. <laughs> Too bad you're not as good as me. You'll never, you'll never add up, but you can get close as you can try. And there's a little bit of that attitude, and Paul is kind of, and he uses this term first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He uses it other places, but now all of a sudden he's like, there will be judgment first for the Jews. <laughs> I think he had to remind them, shake them up a little bit, and say, hey, 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 you're not in because of your birth. Let me say it again. You're not in just because you were born religious or in a religious family or in a religious clan or a religious tree. That tree is in the orchard and that tree is sinfulness and each person is going to be judged by the fruits of their life, not from who their heritage is. Do, do I make that clear? Do you understand what Paul is getting at here? First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Everyone's going to be judged equally and accordingly. Jews don't get special status at the judgment. First, second, third, or otherwise. And then verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Again, he's letting them know everyone's going to be judged. Remember the Bible says for believers, everything's going to be burnt up that was worthless. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? Everything, our actions will be judged someday, but that's not how you get into heaven. I made myself very clear today. Because later on in Romans, he's going to make it very clear. But God, without God doing something, we're all in trouble and we're all doomed. 
So for the person who's never repented and refuses to obey Christ, uh, they're following evil and idolatry, they will be judged, wrath. But for the believer who is saved by grace through faith, they're also going to have their actions judged someday. We all need to remember that. We will stand accountable. And God will show no favoritism. He's going to judge accordingly and equally. Glory and honor, peace, for the the Gentile. God chose the Jewish people to bring about Jesus and redemption. That's why he, he mentions them when he uses the term first. But God shows no favoritism, verse 11. Bottom line, God will judge everyone equally and accordingly. Go to your notes. We'll wrap it up today. I put this together kind of in a presentation of peace. Not that Paul doesn't do a good job. It's just that he, he's even longer-winded than I am. Religious people are without excuse. Number one, I must not pass judgment on others. I believe in a standard. I know right from wrong, but I break the standard. I choose to do what is wrong. And again, we're not thinking about which sin is worse. We're thinking about which sin is mine. We've left Chapter 1, where Paul is pointing out exhibit A of sinfulness, and now he said, you, so you religious person, you know there's a standard. You know there's a difference between right and wrong, and yet we choose to break the standard. We're going to do that verse in just a little bit. Two, I must have eyes to see my own faults. Second thing is there, I must have eyes to see my own faults. I can't conveniently forget the sins I've done and I can't conveniently rename the sins that I've done. I think those are two things Paul is trying to remind believers, Christian people. And I want to take us to that passage in Matthew real quick just to remind us that sometimes we're clueless about our actions. There's this great passage and I've never seen it in this light before but I like it. Matthew 25, I'll just read verses 35 through 39. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you when did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you now we know what christ says he says what you did for the least of these you did for me but what i love about this is the righteous are clueless we didn't know we didn't we 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 must not have known we weren't aware And that's not too far off because then later in verse 42, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he says, when you didn't do it unto the least of these, you you didn't do those for me. My point is is that lost people are clueless in their actions. And religious people are clueless too. I think sometimes we forget the sins we've done. Because we can look and and see somebody who's way further down in their sin. And say, oh, look at that person. Oh, I'm glad I'm not that bad. And we forget. 
And I think more insidious is we just rename sins. We play that crazy game. Animosity, hatred, malice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus changed the standard. (laughs) Remember how Jesus always raises the bar? I want to remind you in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said if you're angry with somebody, if you're bitter and you show malice, then you murder. We rename things. A lustful, having fantasy sex, Jesus would call that adultery and fornication. Feeling a little superior than somebody else, Jesus would call that pride and a prideful heart. See, we rename everything. It's, it's, we don't call it lying and cheating. We call it stretching the truth. We, we don't call it betrayal. We call it protecting my rights. We don't say I steal. We just borrow. <laughs> I don't have prejudice. I just have really strong convictions. So we as religious people just rename our sinfulness and pretend that God will just forget about it. We should not forget about our own sinfulness and we should not do the same things that lost people do and just rename them something else and feel like, well, we're, we're a little superior. I mean, God loves us. He forgave us. I go to church. So my little stretching the truth is different than the person who lies. No. No, that's what Paul's point is. Do you think you'll escape judgment because God shows favoritism? No, no. No, he doesn't. Three, I must expect God to judge everyone equally and accordingly. I must not expect favoritism. It's it's hard, isn't it? I don't know, has any of you ever grown up and, and you had your dad as a coach? Anybody ever have a dad as a coach? It could be great. It could be awful. Anybody here have a dad as a principal? As a school. If your dad was the principal, did you have it made or did you have to be better? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He knew that everybody was watching you. Yeah. Anybody here grew up a pastor's kid? Yeah. That's a rough road to toe, right? Give grace to those PKs, right? Why do PKs turn out a little wacky? Living in a house of glass where everybody's watching all the time? That's a rough life. Paul reminds us all that don't expect favoritism. Dad's the coach. Dad's the teacher. Dad's the principal. But you, you, and Paul's reminding them of that. I need to know God loves me enough to reveal the truth about me. I think that's what Paul's doing. Can I just, can I give everybody a a, a deep breath moment? You're okay. Don't forget the but God statements are coming later on. But he just needed to make sure the playing ground was evil, equal, remember? You know, there's evil, rotten sinners, and then there's really good sinners. (laughs) But we're all, everybody say it, sinners. (laughs) And we will all face judgment. There's no escaping that. There's no escaping it for the lost man. There's no escaping it for the religious man. We will all stand before our God, and he's not going to show favoritism i think that's what paul is trying to say god does love you but he loves you enough to point out that's why he's got paul writing harsh things 
He loves you enough to point your sin out. Because he doesn't want you to continue just being unaware. He doesn't want you to continue fooling yourselves. So in conclusion, God loves us so much, he tells us the truth about our sinfulness. Even you good sinners, he tells us the truth about us. God will not allow us to be tricked or trapped by our own blindness to sin. And forgiveness is available for all who recognize their sin. I can't imagine being there on that day. I don't know if it was church day or what in Rome when the letter showed up and they're reading it. Man, it's, it's a long letter. There's a lot more to come. And I just can't imagine like the process as they're reading the letter and they're getting the, okay, here's what the letter's going to be about. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, okay, now we're talking bad people out there. And then he says, you. Oh, no, bad people in here. <laughs> Equal playing field. One judge, no favoritism. All of this is setting us up for an understanding that without God, lost evil people are in big trouble. Without God, even good Christians are in trouble. It's God and his mercy. And we all must rely on that. And I think it would also be fair to say, then why spend all the time judging? It kind of amazes me when Christians get bent when lost people are acting like lost people. It kind of amazes me. I want to remind us, our job is not to make lost people as moral as we are. Let me say it again. Our job is not to make lost people as moral as we are because that's empty. Paul made it clear. Your goodness, your goodness doesn't mean anything. It's not our job to change the world to be better people. It's our job to tell them about Jesus. We get to tell them about the change maker and the chain breaker and the, and the way maker. We get to tell them about the one who can change your life, who can break free those chains of sinfulness. That spiral downward can be stopped and you can be rescued from a life of sin. We can tell them about that. I believe that if they hear about Jesus and God changed them, they'll clean up their act. I think that's the thing, because Jesus is the greater cleaner-upper. He's better than Mr. What is that, Mr. Quick? What's that, what's that guy's name? Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean, right? Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. And we think we want to go out in the world and make them cleaner-upper. We're going to clean up the world, or we're going we're gonna to make laws. Let's just make a bunch of laws, because laws really make people better people, Right? People are speeding out on 75. Let's change the speed limit back to 65. Wait, let's do something better. Let's change the speed limit to 55. No, let's do even better. Let's change the speed limit to 50. Because if we just change the law, everybody will agree, right? And everybody will obey. Stan, you won't go over 50, would you? Oh, let's change the laws. Let's force morality on a lost evil world. I, again, friends, I'm not against us being involved in our world and trying to make things illegal that are harmful and wrong, but that's not the end game because that will not change lost people. Have we learned our lesson yet? Let's take all the guns away. 
bad people will just turn them in, right? They'll just give them to them because if we make a law, we'll all be good. Let's make, let's make child abuse against the law. Nobody will ever harm a child. You know what we should do? We should make drunk driving illegal, Jeff. I'm going to get on that right away. If we just make drunk driving illegal, then nobody will ever drive intoxicated. And I don't know if you're with me or not. I, I hope you just understand. I'm kind of doing a diatribe like Paul and saying, it's not our goal. Morality is not the end game. It's the byproduct of a changed life. Can I say it again? Morality and making the world a moral place is not our end game. Morality is only the byproduct of a changed life. Oh, God help us. God help us to live in a world that we want to make them make sense. We want to make them think straight. And yet Paul already told us they're depraved. They're debased in their thinking. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. But maybe if we... No. Mm. We've got a lot to do. Got a lot to work on, don't we? Our own view of who God is and our own view of who we are and our own view of what the world is. And again, I just keep bringing us back to gospel urgency. Gospel urgency. Make that your main mission. Make that your main goal. Let's share Jesus. I'll have the band come up. I, I want to end with singing that Psalm 34, that, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to remind ourselves of that, believers. We need to remind ourselves that what we have in God is a life changer. And if he's changed your life, it's a good thing. Why don't you stand and sing it with us as we send you out today.